At the signal, time will be out of joint. Hello and welcome to Weird Signal, a podcast dedicated to all things eerie, weird and hauntological. I'm Sean and I'm here as ever with Lucy. Hello. This episode we're kicking off another trilogy with another visionary director, in this case David Lynch. And joining us is another guest, Philippa Snow. Hello, what is up? Philippa, you are, well, who are you and what do you do, Philippa? Uh, I am a writer. I write primarily about film, uh, and I am also a David Lynch nut, which is why I'm here on this episode. Uh, my partner Thogden and I also run a small press that focuses on experimental horror, but like the films of David Lynch, it's horror that sometimes presents itself in a completely different form. Oh, that is a Hexus press. Yes. And uh, this is actually how we know each other, because um, we've mentioned on this podcast before, Pray to Limina, the uh, zine slash art project slash whole mess of weird that uh, myself, Lucy, and our friend Chris, who guessed last uh, last week, last uh, episode, last month at this point, um, all, all, get, all got together sort of like uh, doing. And uh, it was... At the Satanic Flea Market, which is a uh, semi-regular event in London, I think, and I think about 2015 it would have been. And it's still going. Still going, yeah. yeah. Um, we are all uh, ourselves and Philippa and Thogden just all kind of collided paths because we were flogging protoliminazines and you were flogging your like um, really, really friggin' awesome Hexus journal. Thank you. Uh, and uh, yeah, it was, and uh, and here we are, all these many moons later. Isn't that lovely? <laughs> so you've written, like you said already, that you are a lynch nut as well as a writer, and you've written, and you have written on him. Uh, could you talk through a couple of your publications, perhaps, for us? Uh, yeah, recently I wrote an introduction for um, a book called The Women of David Lynch, which is coming out in May, I think, and that's a collection of essays. Um, I also wrote a slightly insane 10,000-word piece uh, about Lindsay Lohan as the ideal Lynchian heroine, um, which was inspired partly by a terrible film called I Know Who Killed Me that she appeared in, which is a sort of basically a Lynch rip-off that does not succeed on any level. Um, and also it was kind of inspired by the fact that Twin Peaks The Return was on, and I feel like he missed an opportunity uh, by not casting her in it, because I think it would have been the perfect comeback. Uh, I have a lot of thoughts about Lindsay Lohan, but we don't need to go into those right now. Suffice to say, she is my other obsession, and I kind of mashed the two together for that essay. And it was glorious. I read it. Thank it's, you. Yeah, you'll have to send it to me because I don't think uh, I haven't read that. I think. Well, I'll, I be, think sharing, I I'll be sharing it on the Twitter feed. Oh, there we go. Yeah, uh, we are doing a reference with this one. Anyway, so all of this uh, in a very roundabout way, as is our want, takes leads us up to the overwhelming question of what is it we are talking about today, and we are talking about Lynch's nineteen ninety seven masterpiece, Lost Highway. So David Lynch's 1997 film Lost Highway is, like many David Lynch films, um, especially his post-2000 work, notoriously difficult to summarise. Rather than, I think, writing down an attempted succinct summation of the film to read out, I think we're just going to think about like what, what we think we've seen 
Yeah. And uh, in the words of Bill Pullman's character, Fred Madison, uh, see if we can remember it in our own way. Not necessarily the way that it happened. But basically, so it's it starts off in a way that was, at least in its early phases, initially um, reasonably easy to summarize in that it begins with... Um, we are introduced to Fred Madison and his wife Renee, who are living in a house in LA. Um, that well, yes, yeah, played yeah. by uh, Bill Pullman and uh, Patricia, Patricia Arquette. Arquette. Um, and it's yeah, in, in LA, in an incredibly kind of like tense and uneasy marriage, which seems to be kind of which seems well, there seems to be a very definite undercurrent of stuff happening. But then um, over the first kind of forty-five minutes of the film, we see the unease gradually translating it into um, instances of um, of intrus- intrusive phenomena and high strangeness and essentially just kind of mysterious menacing forces entering into their world. It begins with, um, with Fred receiving an intercom message from an unseen visitor uh, simply saying, Dick Laurent is dead. He has no knowledge of a Dick Laurent. Um, but um, this, is, this is the first of many such things. They then start receiving videotape videotapes containing footage initially of the outside of their house, then the inside, and then eventually of themselves sleeping. And, um, and then kind of, well, ultimately of themselves awake and, um, Fred murdering his wife. Um, well, before that happens though, um, he has another mysterious encounter this time at a party with a figure known as the Mystery Man, uh, who tells him that, who, who delivers the strange message that, um, he is that they is it they have met before yeah he says we've met before haven't we at your house call me i'm there right now yes mm. and he is and it's haunting <laughs> yeah yeah that is one of the best scenes in cinema i think like it's genuinely terrifying mm. and brilliant then things get weirder they um you know they start trying to get the police involved but they really have nothing to work with and then suddenly in a bizarre twist it turns out um well, the last video is of him killing his wife, and then it appears, for all intents and purposes, to have happened, though he has absolutely no recollection of it, although uh, this occurred in a very, very intense kind of freak-out moment when it's uncertain what happened. Um, and, you know, this could be the beginnings of, as the film um, press put it, the psychogenic fugue starting to initiate. Um, but despite having no recollection of it, he is uh, promptly arrested and put on death row, um, and is awaiting execution, I believe. But then, uh, mysteriously, uh, they open the cell one morning after he's been complaining of illnesses uh, and headaches, and it's a different man. It is a younger man, played by Balthagar, Balthagar, Getty. It's <laughs> um, a cruel his... name, isn't it? It's, I mean, it's a fantastic name. <laughs> <laughs> the, um, the piece that David Foster Wallace wrote on set of um, Lost Highway, he talks about how Balthazar Getty is like, the best real life fiction character name that he's ever come across. <laughs> he says that he thought he was an absolute arsehole, but he still kept write- writing material about him because he just liked writing the name. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of got that. Um... Oh, he is a Getty. Yes. Oh, sorry, yeah. yeah. Um, I, I, I didn't put two and two together there. He's a Getty Getty. It's got that kind of thing that comes up, I think. I guess it was, is it uh, Warren Ellis kicked it off? Who was, who was it who did Transmetropolitan? That is Warren Ellis. Yeah. yeah not the musician, no. the comicsman. No, the comicsman. But, um, but yeah, it was him. He was he had a character named uh, Spider Jerusalem and that Spider kind of, Herac- Spider Django Heraclitus Jerusalem. That's kind of 
I don't know, that seems to have become like a massively overused trend in comic books now. Like, oh, let's get a really futuristic, you know, cool or cyberpunky sounding name and match it with something classical or biblical. Hmm. And Balthazar Getty is just, again, exactly that. <laughs> um, but what is but what is Balthazar Getty's life? Because that is basically the film from this point onwards. Balthazar Getty is uh, Pete Dayton, who is a young mechanic who has, uh, I guess... He's supposed to have a bit more verve and masculinity than Bill Pullman's character has. Uh, he's very successful with women. Uh, one day a gangster, Mr. Eddie, comes into the garage that he works at, uh, and with him is his mole, Alice Wakefield, um, also played by Patricia Arquette, as effectively Renee, but blonde. Um, does anybody else want to take over here? Because <laughs> it, it, the, the further she, on we go, the less clear it is what's there's, happening. There's because, a, there's yeah. a, so, sorry, you... Um, well, they they um, they get swapped up in a kind of heist operation. Yeah, because there's an extent to which, um, in a sense, it feels like the whole um, Getty narrative is almost like um, uh, a foreign object lodged inside the film that begins with uh, with um, uh, Bill Pullman. Bill Pullman? Yeah, that's his name, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, the, ben Madison. Thank you. And in fact, it is a very radical tonal shift as well as a narrative shift. It does suddenly become a completely different film for a stretch of about 45 odd minutes. It's a very, it's a very odd lurch when you just, you find yourself in, and it does follow the, as is often the case with Lynch, the logic of a dream of how you, in the course of it, you discover yourself in a completely different place to where you started and you can't, and it's almost as if you can't think back to the beginning of it until you've broken out of it in, into wakefulness and can take the whole sequence of images together. Um, well, but... it's also, I think, uh, until the very end when it starts degrading again and sort of returning to being a Lynch film, it is effectively a noir plot, isn't it? Like, yes. Quite a straightforward one as well. Yeah, yeah. But, um, femme, uh, Alice Wakefield is, is the typical femme fatale. She, uh, she seduces uh, the... You know, like the very like the very sexually successful idealized young man uh and gets caught up in a plot of uh betrayal and double crossing and triple crossing and murder and mishap and burglarization and so on and so on and so on and Ramstein. it's kind of like um well it's it's basically what happens to some extent in wild at heart but it's the the kind of innocent and um and corrupted parties have switched around a bit uh, because essentially in that they're kind of both innocents in Wild at Heart, but uh, they're both kind of a bit more complicit in this one, I think. I mean, that also makes sense because this is co-written with Barry Gifford, who wrote yeah. the book that Wild at Heart is based on. Yeah. That's also how the um, the na how this film came into existence via way of uh, Barry uh, um, Gifford. 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 Yeah, they were originally going to adapt another one of Barry Gifford's books, which I think was called Night People. Uh, and then Lynch was reading it and just saw the phrase Lost Highway and basically said, I want to make a film based on this two word phrase. Um, and they both came up with different ideas and scrapped things uh, uh, quite a few times over. Um, Lynch from the start was very keen on making a film about a man who killed his wife but believed himself to be innocent and he'd been inspired by the OJ case being in the news. We may end up going back to that yeah. later. Um, but yeah, those are kind of the circumstances from which it sprang. And the first half with Fred Madison is the part that was always there. Um, the second half was kind of retrofitted later in the writing process. Mm. Mm. And it's, yeah, sorry. It's interesting. I do find it interesting that the inspiration from this came from such a simple 
thing is this two-word phrase, lost highway, because they, I think Lynch is someone who has a... This, because this is similar to how Inland Empire, his last feature film to date, um, came into existence. It was the uh, the almost like the start of the... Maybe not quite the start of the journey, but one of the crystallising factors was simply the discovery of the place name Inland Empire. Um, that like Lynch is someone who... It feels like he has a certain... Uh, he, he understands how something as simple as a name or a very short phrase like that can convey uh, a, a, a can have an aesthetic behind it simply in the name it's it's um and how it some especially if it's something very simple like that has, can have a whole weight of implication behind it it can be extremely uh exciting to work with and extreme and can be extremely um, uh, inspirational despite its um, absolute simplicity well his his working methods as well seem to be um I assume in a way it's very closely connected to his interest in transcendental meditation, but he seems to sort of believe that he is receiving uh, kind of images or kind of gnomic phrases or messages from another place, uh, almost as though everything he makes is kind of delivered to him and he's just the conduit. Mm. Uh, and, and you see this um, um, as a broader point about Lynch's work, this is what you see a lot of in... Um, Twin Peaks, of course, with this is how uh, that um, Dale Cooper, Carl McLaughlin's you know, legendary character, um, is very, very much bases his, his investigative process on intuition and being guided by these strange encounters. And it, it's also, I think, just a um, just kind of coming back to the narrative and how that progresses. It's got that kind of dreamlike thing where uh, there's a slightly um, there's a very well, a profoundly unsettled relationship between the inherent understanding of what's happening and the um, and the, and what's you know what's actually happening, and then, or rather, or rather, you know, it's in dreams. Um, there's you know very often one has an inherent sense of a narrative unfolding, and you'll remember it saying, "Oh yes, this is the story that was told." But then, if you actually try and piece that together from what you saw in the dream state, or at least speaking from my own experience. Uh, they they come as very much disconnected fragments that just fitted that because that was what was understood to be happening. And I think this kind of relates to how the um, how the narrative of well how the just how the film Lost Highway culminates in that yeah we do get a kind of fairly um, not run you know standard function functionally noir narrative with a heist uh, a heist going wrong. And then it's as the as the number of kind of misfortunes and corruptions and um, being you know sh just shit going wrong generally um, starts to mount up that it brings about the break again. So um, so the narrative breaks up, but then so does the um, sort of literal uh, logical kind of c conscious coherency of the narrative, and that's where the um, the strange shape shifting reality bending metaphysics of Lost Highway then comes crashing back in on this world. Uh, that's where we get the strange kind of twin narrative with the Patricia Arquette character because because both the you know oh, we should we didn't mention earlier on but like the the character played by Patricia Arquette in the first half is also the um, gangster's mole to Big Eddie in the second half, but she's got a blonde wig this time. Oh, I did mention that. Oh, we did. Yes. No, that's good. Okay, sure. Sorry, I wasn't paying attention. Um, <laughs> cut it. Cut that bit where I where I 
I think insult we should, to your... <laughs> I think we should keep that, it's yeah. funny. Okay. Um, I mean, then... also we can, you know, even our synopsis has a certain uh, sort of banjaxed dream narrative. Yeah. To it. It's it's fine. I, I remember that my own way, <laughs> in which you did. <laughs> um, in which, yeah. Um, and then, and so, you know, it comes, logic, the world comes crashing down like um, the corner of a coffee table into the forehead of our consciousness. And it's, then the mystery man shows back up and Bill Pullman's back. And the film unfolds with him fleeing through the desert. Yeah, and I think it's worth noting that um, the places where that fantasy, if we're calling the second half fantasy, starts to degrade are when the mystery man reappears and also when Alice, who is the blonde incarnation of Renee, um, rejects him sexually is when he turns back into Fred Madison. So it is the intrusion of the sort of unfortunate facts of his his own real life, <laughs> rather than his imagined life as Pete Dayton. And that, for all intents and purposes, is David Lynch's 1997 film, Lost Highway. Man sieht ihn um die Kirche schleichen. Seit einem Jahr ist er allein. Die Trauer nahm ihm alle Sinne, schläft jede Nacht bei ihrem Stein. Lost Highway is regarded as the beginning of uh, a trilogy of Lynch's works, the LA trilogy, which in uh, including this film, obviously, uh, Mulholland Drive and Inland Empire, which you've already mentioned in passing. And Lost Highway is, uh, is often seen as well as the beginning of the shift into the phase of Lynch's work, which is more marked, by, which is marked by more overt surrealism and more overt um, weird dreamy crap, if I want a better phrase. Uh, though I th personally, I think that um, Twin Peaks Fire Walk with Me is where you start to see the first uh, like four echoes almost of this extreme um, of this extreme strangeness and narrative discombobulation almost that it marks his later works and it kind of i guess in that sense it does also make sense that that was so reviled by critics initially and now has been thoroughly embraced and critical consensus has shifted so dramatically because people i guess maybe weren't ready for it and now that we are primed for it we've had everything else we've had time to think about what david lynch is in this in the kind of like later david lynch context that we can retroactively we've got the retroactive kind of like critical eye to to appreciate what he was doing at that point so maybe that was the schism more than um more than lost highway was but lost highway was where it started picking up speech essentially yeah um i mean something that uh i am sort of really interested in is this idea that Mulholland Drive and Lost Highway are effectively the same film um, if you boil down the basic essentials of the plot but uh, Mulholland Drive feels like the feminine version and Lost Highway feels like the masculine version I really don't like it when people say this is the film for the Me Too moment or whatever but having said that uh, I think that Lost Highway is a horror film about heterosexuality and I think that uh, so much of it is tied in to Lynch's own anxieties about his maleness um, and his relationships with women. Uh, it's kind of telling that Fred Madison's house is actually Lynch's house. Uh, the paintings on the wall are all of his ex-wife's paintings and at one point he kind of has them all flipped upside down. Um, I mean, Lynch 
has the reputation as being like an amazing director to work with. He has this lovely kind of Boy Scout personality. But also, he has had some very difficult relationships with women. He's been married four times, and his relationship with Isabella Rossellini reportedly ended quite badly when he started effectively just ghosting her. I have never liked the second half of Lost Highway as much as the first half, and I think a lot of that has to do with the casting of Balthazar Getty. I think that Lynch is much more comfortable in the first half, the sort of quote-unquote real half of the film, um, with this kind of neurotic character who has a very strained relationship with his wife. But also uh, there's something slightly fearful in the way that he regards his wife, especially the nightmares that he has about her. I think that once he segues into the second half of the film, where we're looking at a character um, who is supposed to be kind of macho and successful with women and charismatic. He has a very traditionally masculine job as a mechanic. Um, he hates jazz music, whereas Fred Madison is a jazz musician. I think that Lynch maybe does not have as clear an idea about what that kind of masculinity looks like, and that might be why he ended up casting Balthazar Getty, who is kind of a charisma vacuum <laughs> and also not particularly masculine. That's, that's actually a thing I found about it. He's kind of... Even though... He, he strikes me as a kind of odd mix of um, masculine traits, which I think I think this is partly down to David Lynch, but also partly um, his his relation, his kind of in film relationship to the Bill Pullman character in the sense that, yes, he's kind of like he's sexually confident and masculine and um, for, for the purposes of the film hot. Uh, I, I don't. I, I. I don't know. I, I'm. He's not my type. But I. Be, I mean, the thing that I found with him is that even though he is all these traits, he is actually kind of. Um, he's quite a passive character in in a lot of ways. He's. He's. He's got a weirdly. Um, a weirdly kind of parallel relation. A weird kind of parallel relationship I found in some ways with the. Um, with the Karma Clockland character in Blue Velvet, almost. That, or, or or even you know the shades of um, Nicholas. Cage's thing, but not quite. But I think more, more, more akin to the Carl McLaughlin one in the sense that he's sort of he's just drawn into this world, and he's just being he's being put in vehicles. He's um, he's showing himself to be useful. Um, he's showing himself to be helpful. There are kind of like, but there are there are always kind of more powerful uh, male figures around him. But I think that's I think kind of the one half of that element. You know, the more kind of like assertively masculine half of him comes from Lynch but also I think I think it might be the sense that if we think because you know we're thinking in terms of his character a lot as a projection figure for the Bill Pullman character who yeah. wants to be masculine and sexually confident but also crucially wants to be innocent yeah and so he's trying to reconcile these things in his mind that he's got to be he's he's got to be kind of inherently pure I think it's worth emphasising that um, Pete Dayton, that Balthazar, Get Balthazar Getty's character's uh, masculinity, because like, we mentioned already, he's not actually that mask, so to speak. I think his masculinity is very, I think it is identical with his with our perception of him and his display of him being a, of, of his sexual success. I think, though, I think that for the purposes of this film, his masculinity is simply his um, sexual vitality. Um, it, there, it is because there is the um, in the first half when um, um, uh, Bill Pullman and uh, Patricia Arquette's characters are having sex, he can't perform, and the gesture that we see, but the camera zooms up in, is 
the like, extremely humiliating one of her patting him on the back. <laughs> yeah, that is haunting. It is a really, it is just, it's just sort of like a very, quite a violent gesture almost because it is, it kind of is one that you can that how it's it is a very powerful, it's a very powerful thing there, and it is very very early on actually when it cuts to Balthazar Getty's characters that to that whole um to that part second part of the narrative very early on we see him uh fucking uh it's very and this is commented upon by other characters there's the absolute when he starts sleeping with uh, alice there's the uh horrible line from the cops that are following him because they're trying to figure out what's going on here one of them says fucker gets more pussy than a toilet seat yeah and it's just like and it is just such a vile and very blokey thing to say as well like it's an extremely crude way of talking about uh, talking about some sexual success which again emphasizes this bullshit toxic masculine um fixation upon sexual success which does seem to be the way that they like bill Pullman's character is trying to salvage his masculinity in this fantasy well there's yeah. another um there's another humiliating moment for fred madison early on in the film when the cops come around and they're asking about the bedroom and uh the cops say, do you both sleep in here? And he says, this is our bedroom. And they say, but do you both sleep in here? <laughs> or some kind of variation on that, which yeah. just speaks volumes, I think, mm -hmm. about the dynamic that Fred and Renee are projecting even in that moment when the detectives are there. I think it's interesting as well that um, if we understand the mystery man as being in some sense a, proje you know, a projection of um, what uh, Fred Madison is repressing, the fact that he is kind of queer coded there is a queerness to him that he is you know, yeah made him with makeup and, and so on and has a kind of femme feel to him to an extent you one potential reading you could have of this is that this is an expression of a repressed um, homosexuality on um uh, on bill pullman's part on fred madison's part and that he is trying to his act of reclamation his fantastical act of reclamation of his masculinity again it is through this fantasy very hetero guy but also young twinkish as well this is uh oh no maybe i'm just working through my own stuff right now but um it is uh, this is it, it is so but it is so obviously tied up with this um with this sense of sexual humiliation that he is that he's perceiving himself as being the victim of so whenever whenever things are like looking really down for him it's actually just like his spectre of his own kind of um insecurities just comes in the, in the figure of this mystery man it's like well look at this <laughs> the um the shot of her hand tapping him on the back as well the dreaded tap is i think also partly lingered on so that you see her nails because she has the same nail varnish as the mystery man and also they both wear very similar makeup and her fa their faces do swap essentially one point her, she does take on the face of the yeah in the yeah. nightmare that he has in that classically lynchian way where he does like completely in-camera effects it's like it's like the same it's the exact same thing that happens in twin peaks where um laura palmer's face projects over donna's Hawthor donna hawthorne's face in sarah palmer's mind during an early episode and it's it's really clunky looking back at it now but it is very evocative and it's that's a kind of foreshadowing of a kind of very analog and very conspicuously practical effects based or we all kind of crudely digital effects based um motif that lynch went for that came to beautiful fruition in season three mm. i don't think he'll ever update his visual effects uh i think people are always going to be disappearing as if it's done like 
with a star wipe on PowerPoint. Or something. <laughs> he um, that's the thing actually. I was reading an interview uh, that he um, that he gave around the time of this film, and he was actually saying how much he hated working in digital in any way. Like, um, and used uh, he describes a very elaborate process where he actually had three analog editing systems running at the same time and use that to kind of process the video and sound together um but yeah it's it is kind of that's interesting seeing that inland empire was shot on digital entirely on digital yeah that's that's kind of well i i I have my own i I have my own theories about why that is which are perhaps more obvious than i'm implying but yeah (laughs) we should we should return to that when we when we when we come to when we come to tackle the big one because that is the big one i think yeah i mean uh, i think also it's worth pointing out that Having said uh, that Lost Highway and Mulholland and Drive are these kind of mirror image films, I think that then, in some ways, Inland Empire is an amalgam of both, and also kind of uh, all of the ideas that he's been working on coming to fruition. I think it's brilliant. I think it's the best of the three films. Um, some people would disagree. I think that you could broadly say that if Lost Highway is a film about David Lynch and Mulholland and Drive is a film about an actress, Inland Empire is a film about an actress who is David Lynch. <laughs> that creates a very, very interesting tension I think we're going to have to explore when we do in the Empire about kind of like um, Lynch's own externalization of his concept, or well, the concept of his own gender and masculinity and uh, taken to its like strange conclusions, which, you know, that may be, uh, we may be seeing the first signs of in the mystery man and this kind of ethereal presence of um, kind of, ambiguously gendered people that's something that recurs a lot as well i mean if you think about ben in blue velvet totally. who is a terrifying character but presents in a very feminized way the cowboy in my and drive um is very camp he's very softly spoken yeah uh, even though obviously as a cowboy he is this kind of classic iconic symbol of american masculinity there's something a little bit sort of askew there uh, too I, pale in his clothes don't fit yeah <laughs> i mean i think every there's something weird about everything that Lynch does with gender and considering the fact that all of his work deals with kind of heterosexuality and very like cis white heterosexuality mm. um, there's never it's it's never normal there's always something a little bit off about it it's almost as if um, in a similar way to the way that he presents America, it's almost like drag. It's like somebody doing an impersonation of something. And I think maybe that's why he's popular. I mean, in terms of his treatment of Americanness, I think that's maybe why he's always been more popular outside of the US and Europe and Japan and so on, because maybe we find it more interesting to look at this kind of, it's like a like an America costume, like a straight man, straight woman costume. Everyone's kind of, playing a role on top of playing a role. What do you want? Want to go for a drive? I don't know. Get in, baby. more directly to the subject of Lynch's relationship with, um, with queerness. I think um, I'm actually going to bring up Dune 
just in passing. And uh, I actually can't remember the article where I... Um, there was an article I, I read somewhere, and I am afraid I can't remember where, and I will try and find it for when we do the show notes, um, which uh, tried to place Lynch's doom within like the context of his... Oeuvre. French for body of work, um, where he, which tries to, which tries to argue that um, it should be considered as be as having a closer relationship with his later films that's generally given because there are some very Lynchian things in it, and in particular, one of the things that's very interesting as, and one expects is a point of deep regret for Lynch is that I think Dune is the first occasion where he does directly in in his work, but he does directly like deal with. A homosexual character or, or queer character and that is in the horrible presence of the baron harkonnen mm. who has been no, it's been noted by uh film scholars his his set like uh, the baron harkonnen's homosexuality is violent and uh and manifests in uh, in, in sort of like in pederastic rape and uh, and in torture and in humiliation and in and, and in murder it's a really horrible um revert like really horrible sort of like deployment of some of the worst um stereotypes there are about gay men um historically and as the way the baron is presented is with is as diseased he is covered in sores and it's analogs being drawn with between that and the common image of the um, hiv aids pandemic uh and there are little features like the fact that the baron's nails are, are, are painted for instance that do kind of are obviously kind of like another aesthetic attempt to tie his um, his sexuality and his queerness with his uh, moral depravity, and I think that because Lynch is like so clearly woke in lots of these different ways, it does feel like this is a sub. This would be a depiction that he would come to regret and maybe trying to develop more um, more aware sort of like relate. Um, um, uh, artistic sort of like a, a not more aware artistic awareness doesn't make sense I, I'm not quite sure what point I'm trying to uh, I'm trying to drive at here but, but this but this yeah. is something that I think I, I can I can believe that this is something that Lynch would have in his mind when he's trying to address these things later it's, on it's but, kind of like in in the same way as um, thinking about um, Denise in Twin Peaks how I don't actually like I don't think he was trying to um, trying to redeem anything because I don't really think there was anything that explicitly needed to be redeemed about the presentation of Denise's character in Twin Peaks. People are, I understand, you know, the people have a lot of objections to that, but I, and this is perhaps not the time to kind of go into that. But... Do, you, do you want to just explain very quickly? Okay, basically, Denise, uh, Denise Bryson um, uh, was a character introduced in season two of Twin Peaks, generally associated with kind of, not the bad <laughs> the, the, the kind of the nadir of, of Twin Peaks season all of two, Twin but Peaks it's is equally brilliant. Especially, it's all crucial. Especially, yeah. But um, but yeah, she's kind of she's introduced as sort of the butt of jokes and stuff. But at the same time, she's she's a very she's a trans woman, but she's a very human character. She's not a kind of like idealized uh, Danish girl, the um, <laughs> red main type figure. Um, and nor is she a, a you know um, the other great kind of contemporary trans woman in um, in crime fiction and film and you know TV at the time would be the archetype of Buffalo Bill um, in Silence of the Lambs. She's 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 not kind of presented as pale, mysterious, um, ethereal, vulnerable victim type person. She is someone with like character and personality and some, and she does make kind of self-deprecatory jokes. 
uh, and stuff. And you know, there's all things like it's like, oh, they they you mean they have um, that line where Audrey says, oh, you mean they have female FBI agents? And she replies more or less and stuff. <laughs> it was like, um, and just like just openly talks about her junk. Uh, um, that's it. actually that's in season three, but um, but you know says like you know I still put I still put on my pantyhose one leg at a time that kind of thing. Um, it's very. I don't think we've had a better trans character in fic- in 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 mainstream film or or television. I think since since her because because everyone wants it to be just these sort of everyone wants their trans women to be mysterious and distant. And there's you know that's that's a whole other discussion to be had there, but. Um, but, also, yeah. with, with Denise, there's also the feeling that you can't exactly be a good person if you've managed to become the chief of staff of the entire Federal Bureau of Investigation. Mm-hmm. You can't. You must have like there must be a few bodies buried somewhere. Like there is like that's was one of the reasons that she's an extremely compelling character. Like, yeah. you know, but um, competence is fun to see. We've met before, haven't we? I don't think so. Where was it you think we met? At your house, don't you remember? No, no, I don't. Are you sure? Of course. As a matter of fact, I'm there right now. What do you mean you're where right now? At your house. That's fucking crazy, man. Call me. Getting back to the mystery man. (laughs) One of the things I kind of wanted to bring up, which I just basically thought of while we were setting up, is the fact that uh, there's a kind of... There is a classical kind of mythological thing to be brought in here, which is kind of coming out. There's the there's a tr- long-standing tradition of um, gender ambiguity being assigned to kind of trickster-type figures. So I think kind of the character of Loki is uh, Loki in in the Nordic um, mythos pantheon is um, kind of tr- is presented as kind of more or, or less kind of typically masculine as the uh, than the other kind of Asia. Um, and in the same, and also, you know, this, I'm sure there are other examples. I think there is a kind of Hellenic equivalent to be drawn. Uh, well, I mean, perhaps like Mercury, Ariel, um, but crucially, I think, um, one figure, because this is the podcast of the weird, as well as the area of the um, the Lovecraftian figure, Niall Athotep, is, um, presented as kind of the, it's the kind of, uh, they are the analogue in some of the more kind of mythologically oriented stories between the human comprehension or world of human comprehension and the outer gods. Uh, And they are often presented in a kind of strange um, gender ambiguous uh, kind of mask wearing, uh, mysterious and um, in some senses queer way. And that that is something obviously I want to retreat another time, but I think it's it's entirely apt that um, that we do have a character like this, who is the analogue to the outer dark of uh, Lynch's cosmos. Uh, however, you know, however literally we want to take the idea of a Lynchian cosmology, because, you, or, you know, a cinematic cosmology. 
um, or you know, or a cosmology consisting of film, which I think is also a legitimate sort of territory to work within. Yeah, I think one thing in Lost Highway that he does do very well as a reflection of kind of heterosexual maleness is the way that Alice, who is the blonde uh, double of Renee, who appears in the dream fantasy half of the film, uh, shifts her personality. Um, she begins as a porn actress, uh, but one who has been sex trafficked. Um, and in that way, Fred allows her to be um, a figure who hasn't cheated consensually. Um, her sex with Mr. Eddie in the fantasy is because she's been coerced into it. Um, but then, of course, that means that he's killed an innocent woman. So she has to then turn out to have loved being in the pornos and also to be a duplicitous bitch. I just think it's great. I think there's something so classically male um, about those two opposing kind of poles that he's flip-flopping on who this dream woman can be uh, in order to absolve himself. I think it's fascinating. It reminds me somewhat of uh, going back a few, quite a few episodes actually, of um, uh, Ex Machina, of the um, the trope of the so like the trope of the uh, deceptive woman seeking to um, this extremely so like masculine anxiety about the woman as and uh, the woman as inherently a deceptive force and a self-interested force, which I think does manifest in how um, Ex Machina ends. And it, and it is a similar kind of um, turning, a turn there when she does whisper to him, you will never have me, where it does, where, and this does take us all the way back to the possibility of Mrs. Lynch working through his own anxieties about his masculinity and his relationships with women, that, that maybe this is him trying to put on the screen this uh, heterosexual masculine fear that um, women uh, that women plot above all else almost. Well also even in his dreams Fred is struggling to successfully have sex with his wife. Um, it's, it's tragic yet again. <laughs> <laughs> so we've touched on uh, some of the more metaphysical aspects of Lynch's um, artistic process already when we talk about how he does seem to try and derive inspiration from the universe as such and messages being conveyed from the outside. Um, something that I've always found really interesting is how Lynch, um, Lynch's use of spaces and, uh, and places as sort of transformative sites. And there's a quite uh, a helpful concept for uh, thinking about these, which is the notion of the liminal space, uh, or the uh, which literally meaning the the threshold space. And I found uh, a website I think just do kind of like motivational life coaching <laughs> courses called liminal a lim called in a liminal space .org, which just had this very uh, this uh, accidentally very helpful definition of what liminality is, taken from the uh, author and theologian Richard Rohr. Uh, who describes liminal spaces as places as spaces where we are betwixt and between the familiar and the completely unknown. There alone is our old, old world left behind, while we are not yet sure of the new existence. That's a good space where genuine newness can begin. Get there often and stay as long as you can by whatever means possible. This is the sacred space where the old world is able to fall apart and the bigger world is revealed. If you go on this website, it turns out to be some kind of like weird sort of like rip off Scientology life coaching thing. I'm really sorry. That was just a really effective description of what well, I'm trying I to think, get at. But. I think this isn't 
kind of what we've seen outside of Lynch's films. This isn't a hundred miles away from things when I think this is how Lynch talks about things when he's not strictly on brand. This is like the stuff we get with uh, the. I mean, you guys have seen the promo around the David Lynch Foundation about teaching. Not, actually, not? I know what it's about, but it's about like, teaching it, trans. Yeah, trying to teaching kids transgender meditation. But. Well, basically, it's sort of like the only the only conceivable time that well, because as as far as we're aware, um, that like <laughs> David Lynch and um, David Lynch and fucking. Uh, what's that guy? The horrible comedian with the chest hair. Um, <laughs> shit. Russell Brand. Uh, like, you know, it's like kind of Russell Brand is involved with it and lots of other kind of figures that we would very much not associate with the David Lynch world. Although that said, there is, I guess there is no figure safe from entering the cosmos of David Lynch. But it, it is weird seeing him talk like this and describe things with like, kind of, just, a lot of it's not even like him talking, but it's kind of, his name is on it and it, it's kind of jarring but yeah some of it is just like it's on it's this unironically yes the um so just taking it back to the film so like what so the so liminal spaces are are locations where you feel yourself caught between you feel yourself in a nowhere point almost and they're very like these are something about i think we, we um this isn't anything supernatural or spooky here this is just these areas that we kind of find ourselves in we're sort of like glimpsing a behind like behind the scenes almost it's where it's sort of like where if you find yourself having turned like um, I, i'm thinking about actually where uh, where i live in brighton like uh where if i'm out walking at lunch from away from the office like very easily i'll find myself at this kind of sort of like the back end of the city almost which you're not really meant to see because you're meant to see the nice flashy bits but then you see oh but this is the other bit this kind of like nowhere industrial zone where just the work is done where the actual mechanisms are and lynch i often and these are often uh spaces that have this kind of threshold quality to them because they're very because they're nondescript they're somewhere where you have fallen out of the familiar but you haven't quite arrived in anything with the same distinctiveness of the familiar world you've left yet you're caught in a boundary zone and um lynch has a habit in his in his work and we see we see this in lost highway and we see it a lot in twin peaks of taking spaces which are very ordinary spaces like a domestic space and sort of transforming it into a liminal location or place where familiar where a familiar under familiar understandings of what the world is is suddenly shifted and we're kind of thrown into this uh new arena where it isn't exactly clear what's going on anymore like he does this with like we already mentioned that um where the whole first half of the film takes place is uh, is a home lynch's own home and he what happens here is this this distortion of it with the arrival of the videotapes where it is no longer a safe place for them to reside there's this element of intrusion there and this gradual breakdown of any kind of notion of like pure continuity and safety that could uh, be found there like what like when they're returning from the party there's a really terrifying moment it really freaks me out or if you just see when they pull up outside the house just the lights just moving behind the windows when you know there's no one meant to be there so and it's moving in a completely inhuman interplay of shadow and light it's a very short distressing moment yeah that that really that is very and the fact that it's not just a home it's his home i mean 
when you see it on film, it looks like such a terrifying place to live. I cannot imagine anyone being happy or domestic there. Mm. But obviously he was occupying that space in his day-to-day life. Yeah. But, but I did read on Wikipedia just now that, that apparently that property is one of three he owns on the same street just yeah. side by side. So, because he's a very wealthy man. I bet uh, they're all fucking terrifying. Though. <laughs> also he makes all of his own furniture, which is why all the furniture in the house is weird. I read once, and I have no idea if this is true, but it sounds like it could be true, that he doesn't like furniture that has right angles, which is why he chooses to make his own instead. <laughs> <laughs> which wow. is very Lynch, even if it's not actually true. I think. Now, now I think of it, one of those... Um... Can you remember a single right angle in this film? <laughs> <laughs> and now I think of it, this must be, one of those houses must be where the wonderful 20-minute shot of him cooking quinoa was filmed. Oh, shit. Yeah, which, I wish you'll put on showing this. It's on YouTube. We've got to revisit this. Maybe it's, a... it's across different houses. <gasps> But yeah, there's just a 20-minute show of David yeah. Lynch cooking quinoa I mean, and then just talking about a trip through the former Yugoslavia and it's just the weirdest fucking thing. It's that's great. something I want to pick up on, actually. But um, but yeah, I, I think with, the, with the, the idea of it being his own home, that did... That does kind of... Just going, just going back to kind of those first scenes of the film, that does bring a lot of stuff that you see into a very strict context um, or, or given a very interesting context when you when you understand that. It's like... A lot of the initial scenes are very strange kind of first-person shots um, of like kind of kind of dizzy disconnected first-person shots and and these are you know these are menacing these are meant to be a kind of like a sinister intrusive spectral presence in the building but then you realize it's like wait David Lynch probably was the point of view at some point before this became film Mm. he embodied that presence going around the room um, you know, looking at these people, looking at these faces, and probably I'm imagining on his own, possibly for a ser- many hours or days, um, thinking very, very hard about the space and coming to grips with it. And it, you know, that's I think that's why it feels so uncomfortably intimate, um, because he had a very, very strict knowledge about how how the intimacy of the place worked. Uh, also, there are no windows. That's another crucial thing. Yeah, and like a knowledge of just how quiet and empty uh, that house could feel, mm. perhaps with two people in it who weren't getting on particularly well, <laughs> yeah. uh, judging from some of the things that were happening in his personal life around that time. And also, just like some of the stuff that happened, hap- you know, some of the stuff that happens in the film also happened in that house, mm-hmm. like including that that very crucial moment that Dick Laurent is dead. Yeah. Thing. Uh, also the bit with the windows you were saying that was that was when he lived in Philadelphia oh um, right with what, I'm sorry David one of his wives I don't remember which one there have been too many um, they woke up at night and saw a face in their window and then heard this person running up over the roof to escape which is horrible um, oh my god yeah I mean I get that quite a lot in this flat because <laughs> um, you live in a weird warehouse yeah um, and people walk on my roof fairly often and they peep in your windows they don't peep in my windows but like there was like a person dressed as an old lady just on that roof that I'm pointing at for the listeners <laughs> at home um, I took a picture of it I'll post the picture but she was dressed as a kind of like Eastern European babushka type and like I, you know I could hear them talking it was clearly a younger like pro- you know, they were clearly like students like art students but that was that was jarring. <laughs> um, we, were just, we, all, we were just kind of like nervously eyeing the window. I know. 
the swaying uh, paisley curtain. Your window has bars on it as well, which I kind of like. <laughs> obviously, I've noticed, but like I'm just noticing that they're there. That's um, it's not the picture keep... that's being painted of this home is a lot darker than it actually is. In, in yeah, maybe not uh, that much say. darker. Really. Yeah, we've got, I've got, uh, we've got Sekhmet and Bast there. We've got my squid. We've got my my weird, slightly fashy-looking runic skull thing. Um, it's it's going to be completely baffling to the majority of our audience who are people who have not been in this room. I got it. It's a print I bought from Svartruna. <laughs> um, check him out. Very, very good. But any, but we're Liminal getting way spaces. off track. Liminal spaces. Well, so, uh, so, yeah. Yeah, and I think actually to sort of like bring this all the way back to the hauntological, which is, continues to be our staying power and guiding light. Um, this, like, bit, like these liminal experiences or liminal places, they do, gen they do have the hauntological character. In that, if we recall, going, like, again, reading this through the Fisherdian, I'm going with today, um, definitions of the weird and the eerie, with the hauntological being about this tension between presence and absence, which is the, uh, dare I put it, you know, the haunting character of being as such, or I sort of like to hideously paraphrase him, that the liminal space is having this character of being nowhere in particular, of being, I mean, honestly, kind of like, it's the same thing that Ballard picks up when he talks about, you know, just airport runways and, and yeah. these places where there's meant to be something there which isn't and yet the place is there all the same that it and this is why i think it can be argued that these locations have a um are, are sites where metaphysical concerns can be allowed to play themselves out to us and by and by metaphysical i am using this in a really precise um, sense because it's like it's a hideously misused word I'm, I, I mean this I do mean this in the Heideggerian sense of the, the metaphysical encounter the metaphysical moment being these moments in our lives where we are just really called to consider the fact that there are things at all that there is is that being is such a thing that bees uh, these are things that I'm, I'm certain it makes more sense of a German but uh, <laughs> um, but yeah and where I think that when we are caught in these um, in these limit in these threshold spaces that and and this is something that Lynch does really well and does create these very uncanny uh, unheimlich unholy spaces um, or transforms homely spaces into unholy spaces this does shift us sufficiently out of our ordinary um being in the world in the Weltzeit in German uh that we are able that the about the that, that the overwhelming question of why is there anything at all the Zeinfrage the question of being is made very uncomfortably apparent to us because how Heidegger frames it in his uh uh, lecture series the introduction to metaphysics is that kind of like the question is posed as why is there something rather than nothing there is the possibility of nothingness embedded in the question and this is the kind of the instability of the encounter that i think lynch is able to present really fucking well with his movies when he does create when he does just present us with these spaces or these images which have this tension between existence and non-existence or have such an uncanny unwelcoming unwelcoming character that we are called to think about these things that the metaphysical does make itself apparent to us well also um the majority of his films operate in this universe where 
almost anything in them could not exist. Uh, a place, a person, a thing. Um, we're never sure what's dreamed or imagined and, and what belongs in the real world. So technically nothing is concrete and everything is shifting. And you see his hands all over everything. You see him changing the characters as the film goes on in the same way that you would end up changing characters in your own dreams or nightmares. Mm. Uh, yeah, just thinking about uh, words that are often misused, I think it's probably worth mentioning that this film, uh, on the set of this film, is where David Foster Wallace first came up with the definition of Lynchian, which is the one that's most commonly used now, which I'm really sorry, but maybe there are three people out there who don't already know the definition, but who like Lost Highway, so... Um, the term refers to a particular kind of irony where the very macabre and very mundane combine in such a way as to reveal the former's perpetual containment within the latter. I just thought, connected to your point, it's worth saying that that I, definition sprang from this film. I wasn't aware of that definition, and that's really good, because I, because being, being the uh, uneducated ignoramus I am, I've never read any David Foster Wallace. So I've, I've learned something there. So. I'm going to say now, and maybe I'm just being open because I'm so hungover that I feel like I might suddenly burst and turn into Balthazar Getty. I've never successfully read Infinite Jest. Oh. I've tried. Get out. <laughs> I've not even tried. <laughs> I don't even know what that is. Uh, I, 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 I'm aware it's a book. Yeah. Okay, yeah. cool. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, no, it's kind of. Our listener base just absolutely plummets as everyone realizes we've not read it for the chest. It's fine because I think there is a certain kind of hipster attitude that people take where they say, I prefer his non fiction. And I actually do love his non fiction. So nobody needs to know except for anyone who's listening to this podcast. Oh, marvelous. Um, well, there you go then. Uh, I think kind moving of on. on set stuff definitely needs to be something we, we bring up as well because, like, the making, like, just, there is such a, I mean, even thinking of it in terms of, like, the liminal and the concrete and stuff, there is so much, there is so much ambiguity between, um, between kind of how much reality seeped into this film, how much, how much it was kind of, like, direct, well, I mean, this is going back to that Lynchian thing of just him taking signs from the universe, but it was just specifically a little, like, microcosm of that universe seemed to happen on set, uh, but that's, um, part of which, in, Part of which included, um, part of which included uh, the fact that like Ramstein just kept sending them tapes, so David Lynch wasn't listening to them, but the rest of this crew were. So there was just ambient Ramstein playing all over the place. That's how it came in. Uh, that's something I want to pick up in a bit. But one thing that like your, that that summary though reminded me of is the fact that, um, it, as is weirdly often the case, um, this as as many of Lynch's films were for different actors it was the last film made by jack nance uh, which given the kind of like the ratio of films starring jack nance and david lynch films starring jack nance it's probably actually not so unlikely but it just that that thing about the kind of like mundanity sudden darkness gothic brutality um and and the humor of it all seem to all seem to converge at the manner of jack nance's death which was um I, think, I believe it was like a brain hemorrhage following a fight at a donut shop. And yeah, that's correct. Yeah, and it's like, it's it's terrifying, but it's also, well, it's, it's, it's very, very sad, but it's also profoundly Lynchian. I think he also had almost lethally high blood alcohol levels as well. Yeah. But just something something that brutal, and then just something so very, very unpleasant coming out of nowhere 
Um, and then kind of having a weirdly sustained thing where he's actually just going around. Because like, it wasn't a, pr- a quick process. He didn't just get knocked out and then die. It was like, I think it was a couple of days um, of just having some slight bruising under his eye where it happened and then just not really knowing the difference or n- not knowing what was happening. And then it just struck. And that was, yeah, that, that just... That seems to have a have a strange kind of quality to it. Well, yeah, I think receiving a fatal blow in a donut shop is very Lynchian, isn't it? Definitely. This was also the last feature film um, to feature Richard Pryor. Oh, yeah. And, oh, shit, yeah. And th- this is just pure tangents, and I do not apologise for this. When I read that, I fell down the Wikipedia hole, which led me to discover that in, the, in 1984, Richard Pryor had a Sesame Street-style kids show called Pryor's Place. And it has a really bizarrely formatted Wikipedia article, which some appears to just like copy and pasted the entirety of like all like the collated episode guides. So you just get these weird little snippets of a compl- of a kids show, which I think is literally completely unavailable. Does the uh, Wikipedia page have a subheading for controversies? Because I imagine <laughs> great lost no, children's shows. No, but the theme song was performed by Ray Parker Jr. as well. And it's just like, I found, yeah, it's just a bizarre little thing to have existed. And, and one of the episodes is called, for this kid's show, kid show is called Sax Education. And the synopsis is, Richie loses his saxophone. And I just, yeah, it's a, this, this is uh, what I do at work sometimes. Incidentally, <laughs> Sax Education, great alternate title for Lost Highway. Definitely. <sighs> Awesome. It wasn't yeah. a tangent after all. No, it's like, what's your axe? Mine is impotence. <laughs> mine is mine is like playing this this like brass brazen flute very loudly. And also, yeah. that episode starred Robin Williams. Huh? <laughs> there you go, eh? Okay. Oh. Well, yeah, when, we, when, we, when we get around to our like great lost media episode, which will involve like the Diana musical, um, we can bring that up as well. Also, yeah. Prior's Place sounds like an advisory circle album. But anyway... What uh, do people think about the use of Richard Pryor in the film? I mean, he said, like, Blink and you miss him. As did I almost... I think I kind of did. I think he's in it for... Is he in it for a single scene? Uh, He has a couple of scenes at the garage. But I think people had issues with his casting because they thought that his disability was being used as Mm. a kind of classic Lynchian kind of grotesquery. I'm not sure I agree with that. Mm. Um, I don't think that Lynch is doing it from a sinister place. I think he's doing it probably because he thinks Richard Pryor is amazing and wants to have him in the film. But yeah, I just wondered if anyone else had any reactions to it. Not enormously, no. It was just... Some, it, it was just... America, oh, it's Richard Pryor. Hmm. Uh, who I weirdly know specifically like from um, the super, like Superman 3. I think he was in. That was just kind of like my like the kind of the entirety of my encounter with him was just watching that movie as a kid, being freaked out by the robot lady. Huh. It probably just says really like bad things about how like un- un- completely out of touch I am with um, culture. But, but there you go. Um, I think kind of one of the things I want to bring up at this point, just kind of to bring it to bring us out of this kind of hauntological sphere that we've entered, but also kind of crystallize what we've been talking about is. One thing I was, uh, I found, I kind of came across in my research, which felt like it put this in a lot of context, is the fact that during the kind of, it's it feels too short to be considered a wilderness period, but the strange kind of, the strange uncertain territory his um, career entered in the early 90s post, um, post Fire Walk With Me, uh, one of the things he talks about was a, um, 
a tra a long treasured ambition to adapt Kafka's Metamorphosis. Yeah, and, in yeah. a fifties rock and roll style. Yeah, <laughs> um, and that's that's kind of that was interesting because it's it's interesting for the obvious reason that like a metamorphosis takes place. Um, and you know that's you know that because this is a process of metamorphosis that we keep that we see throughout the LA trilogy. So I think that's fairly integral. But crucially, it's and it is that thing you mentioned about specifically him wanting to kind of Americanize it because one of the things he mentions in that interview is the fact that um, he he picks up the fact that um, the story Metamorphosis and indeed all of Kafka's stories are very very integrally Eastern European hmm. specifically Eastern European Jewish as well um, and I think that's some that's that holds a very profound um, that, that holds a certain resonance when we're thinking about these films in terms of space because um it's a trend that that kind of like translation of something very very eastern european over into um into an american context but never quite losing that kind of fundamentally eastern european quality or you know having having whatever whatever that may be a core of something distinctively and definitively eastern european is very very interesting because we're thinking in terms of like it's pure kind of like old world, new world. This is kind of his films in LA are engaging with the uh, the mystery of the new world because it's the furthest point, furthest point west in America. Uh, it's got that kind of frontier legacy and stuff, um, but also, um, but also, you know, it's it's America is kind of the modern um, the breakdown of kind of like the modern coherent state. The sort of um, you know, which has, you know, is defined by technology, is defined by industry and things. And that's that's it breaking down. But when we see it kind of start to break down, the legacy of these old Eastern European things tends to come through. And the quality that I identify as being distinctly Eastern European is something we picked up, in fact, in our Nosferatu episode. Uh, the kind of, the thing about Eastern Europe is it is like kind of, it's the unknown, but specific, but kind of historically unknown because it's a place where, borders have been typically more fluid than um uh well than somewhere like britain or indeed america like borders have been much more fluid we get you know we get the classic trope in um the dracula story it's about that he's from transylvania and the reason why transylvania is so res resonant is it is that it is a place that no longer exists geographically it's been kind of written off the map and is now just a kind of vague territory and it's that kind of that vagueness, that strangeness, that otherness, that amorphousness, and um, that mystery that carries over into it. And then Eastern Europe comes to have a subtle but ever-growing presence in the LA trilogy. Um, and you know, obviously, we're going to pick this up in uh, in the Empire thing. But but in the Empire is about adapting a story originally from a Jewish, uh, not Jewish, just in a, a Czech or Polish. I think it's Polish, a Polish I folk think, tale. Yeah. And then that's where kind of like just a general ambient presence of Polishness comes in. Uh, but there's a lot of stuff to do with um, this kind of Czech influences and obviously Kafka being uh, Czech uh, comes into this. Also, um, we're going to talk about music later, but um, Angelo Badalamenti, um, note of, it should be noted, recorded uh, bits of the soundtrack with the um, Prague City Philharmonic Orchestra. Uh, so that's something. And, you know, and David Lynch talks specifically about how uh, it was their kind of, the kind of musicality of, um, or an Italian doing, bringing in kind of American jazz influences in an Eastern European Philharmonic um, 
orchestra, these things combining is just... Again, it doesn't pin down to anything in particular, anything you can put your finger on, but it is there, it is very present, and I think that's... That's something I like to... <laughs> that's something I like, I feel gives a certain context, whatever that may result in. One other thing, you mentioned the, the quinoa monologue. Um, that is him talking about his dream of Eastern Europe. And, crucially, the former Yugoslavia, which no longer exists, which is another amorphous territory that's been written off the map and exists now only as a spectre. Yes, I think it's important to emphasise that when we talk about the um, the perceived like amorphousness of Eastern Europe, this is, the key word there is, the perceived amorphousness mm. of Eastern Europe, that... Um, a lot of these states that exist there are not do not have the have because obviously they've they've, uh, they've gone through a, through a, a very different historical process to the uh, quote unquote the developed Western uh, bourgeois nation uh, states the uh, the liberal democracies which put so much of the idea of sort of what it is to be a state in this sense is that they are is to you know the existence of the of the boundary that allows the state to exist like Germany doesn't there isn't a Germany until it is able to fix its borders and become a sort of a cohesive state of course but although these um a lot of these boundaries and borders and notions of where states were in Eastern Europe uh sh have like have have shifted and re altered themselves so much is a lot a lot of it is due to the fact that these boundaries were placed upon them by the more powerful European powers in the first place mm. and then what happens like with like with the collapse of Yugo of uh, the former Yugoslavia is the resurgence of the prior senses of where a place is and where a culture and a community and a nation and a people is within this context violently reasserting itself. under the impression that this was the first, like, coming to this film, this is the first time I had ever seen uh, Lost Highway. And it turns out that that wasn't actually the case. I had actually been present while it was on in possibly 1997-1998. It was on a VHS being played in my home. I don't know by whom or to whom. But um, this uh, realisation came crashing in on me when the now immortal line from Mr. Eddie is delivered that is, you like pornos? Give you a boner. Um, which just struck me, even, even as a young child, that that's a profoundly weird line and a very strange thing to say to another person. Um, and I think, I think, um, I think that's quite pertinent in our discussion of, um, of how, you know, Frank's, uh, not Frank's, uh, Fred's masculinity and his, uh, kind of projection into Peter. 
uh, is is something of a an attempt to reframe his own masculinity and purify it. I think kind of the grotesquerie of language um, that arise that we see in that and in things like the line um, "fucker gets more pussy than a toilet seat" is is his attempt to distance himself from what he sees as the uh, the more kind of grotesque and aggressive and le- impure elements of masculinity. But oh, like seeing it seeing it again. I was mainly struck by the realization that I did spend a good few weeks going around telling, just saying at people, "You like pornos? Give your boner," just to gauge their reaction. <laughs> I was really hoping that that anecdote would make it into the podcast, and I think it just, in some ways, describes you so well, Lucy. <laughs> I was fucking insufferable, and I still am. <laughs> Mister Eddie's a strange character um, because he's he is very obviously a direct descendant of uh, Frank Booth and Blue Velvet. They both have a very similar energy. I think Frank Booth is maybe a slightly better character. Um, and Robert Loggia, so can I talk about the no, casting totally. stuff a bit? Yeah. Um, Robert Loggia was originally interested in playing Frank Booth, uh, and Lynch had always wanted Dennis Hopper for the part, but allowed Robert Loggia to apparently turn up for an audition and then just left him waiting. Um, and when Lynch finally arrived... Uh, Robert Loggia just completely exploded at him and then Lynch remembered that later when he was casting for this and that's how he ended up being Mr Eddie in the film. The casting is is just weird generally Um, the fact that he chose Balthazar Getty because he saw a picture of him in a magazine (laughs) which is perfect because the role might as well have been played by a picture of Balthazar Getty (laughs) in a magazine and also um Robert Blake as the mystery man, a guy who later ended up killing his own wife. Huh. That's, yeah, that's, that's kind of nuts. There's a lot of, like, weird crossover of intense violence and madness inside and outside of it. I kind of feel like for legal purposes we should mention that Robert Blake was, was acquitted, but was later, because American laws are weird, a civil court found him liable for her death. Like, he was acquitted of murder... But obviously did it, and everyone knows it. I think. Yeah, I mean, don't don't sue, don't sue us, yeah, for this. But I didn't. Quite a few people testify that he had tried to pay them to kill his wife, oh, and they'd all said no. So obviously, he <laughs> allegedly did not take matters into his own hands. Mm. Wink, wink. He definitely did. And he's not the only. He's not the only kind of figure who definitely killed their wife um, to have had an influence on um, on this film, um, because well, David Lynch. Uh, mentions in an interview that this was in fact inspired by the O.J. Simpson case. Which is bizarre. Like, the idea of any Lynch film being directly inspired by something in the news, um, and particularly something so of its time, is really strange and quite uncharacteristic for his work. I think generally um, the film feels very 90s in a way that most of his other work doesn't feel dated. And that's partly the soundtrack. It's also partly the knowledge that it's supposed to be um, kind of analogous with the O.J. Simpson case. Mm. I I think that's interesting as well because like, you know, it seems astonishing thinking about it today that David Lynch would ever have you know the 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 brilliant genius um, David Lynch would ever have trouble getting something funded or be out of you know um, out of sorts with critics in a way that was long term damaging to his career. But um, you know, but. This was at a time when he was um, seen as uh, essentially having passed it. That you know, his um, that he was a uh, a financial and critical liability. Um, this is mainly through the um, 
the 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 failure of um well the the initial critical failure of fire walk with me did i already say this bit i think you mentioned the fire walk with me thing um, in the introduction yeah because that's quite often you see critics citing that as their favorite lynch film now yeah but obviously it was booed at Cannes and received absolutely horribly at the time yeah but um the thing that i think is quite interesting here is that it may be um you know this is a criticism that was leveled at fire walk with me it is often the tendency of a director or any kind of creator who is having trouble in their career to return to familiar or nominally safer territory um which is you know that was level you know seen as like oh things aren't going so well after um was it after Wilder Heart or Straight Story or something? But uh, things aren't going so well. Let's go back to Twin Peaks. And that was seen as a mistake by people who didn't understand what they were looking at. But um, but in what we're seeing in um, in this profoundly zeitgeist 1990s film that he then made was, was him doing the exact opposite, moving away from um, safer territories into things that, you know, just just upping he's just doubling down and upping the stakes and surging on and so we get so we get a film that is inspired by a contemporary news thing and has a soundtrack featuring nine inch nails well i think also um i think it's important to take into account that one of the reasons people really didn't like fire walk with me was because it was darker in tone than the original two seasons of twin peaks it had none of the sort of soapy uh, humorous elements it's a it's an odd film but also it's just quite a tonally bleak film and so is lost highway um mm. he could have gone in a different direction but instead he really doubled down on making films that are just really fucking uncomfortable and difficult and just black-hearted never changed david no and it's also i mean lost highway is also where a lot of the the big themes that we associate with Lynch first start to be crystallised. I think that that LA trilogy is most emblematic of what you think of when you think of a David Lynch film, particularly that sort of slipstream between the real and the imagined and the setting of, if not Hollywood in this instance, then LA. Yeah, because we haven't really we haven't really talked that much about like LA, even though that's you know it's normally the LA trilogy, but. It's- that's something we kind of struggled with, I guess, to kind of put a finger on why this is the LA trilogy. Because I guess it was, you know, it's the the connection is more obvious uh, because Hollywood in both Mulholland Drive and in the Empire. But with this, it's I guess more kind of like the the crime, the proximity to deserts. Um, it's yeah, it's yeah, it's. Uh... Well, also the other two are literally named after geographic locations in Los Angeles, and this is very deliberately named after something that's not a location at all, a lost highway. Mm. Mm. Uh, I, um, I'm just going back a little bit to what I was saying, what, what I was saying earlier about liminal spaces, cause something, I, something I've forgotten to mention actually, is the high, is the liminality of the highway, uh, specifically of there is something um, extremely, there's something about, and this is what the shot that opens uh, the film, uh, of course, it, there's something very... Um, uncanny about the experience of driving down the road at night like especially and how we see in this film of it being just all there is is this artificial space of the highway itself illuminated and all around it is the um the oppressive 
noct- uh, nocturnal presence, uh, or rather the or the, or the absence of presence that is sort of like this the, uh, the uh, this absolute natural blackness. And I think this is and what's interesting here is this is. Um, how it is it does feel like the, the experience of driving down a road like this at night does almost kind of bring into uh in, in in into view not only the metaphysical question as such that i mentioned earlier but also just like the a question of our relationship with just the things that we produce in the relationship with the natural world in a really weird sense in that the highway is this place which is purely artificial is featureless after a fashion is purely functional but all around it acting as like its absolute barrier is are precisely by like the things that aren't made by the nat- by natural growing things or things that just come about on their on their own there's something very s- mystical almost about that that place that feeling and the span like the name and just from the name of it as well it is although there is a location in the film called the lost highway hotel which i think is just a bit on the nose um i've and, never noticed that is this presumably the hotel at the end yeah. where he sees renee and mr eddie which i um which i really resented when i got to that bit in the film in my rewatch because that spoiled my points <laughs> but i was going to make about how we know what is the lost highway highways oh, it's a hotel um but ignoring that because it ruins my point um it's like the name itself kind of like brings that uh, to, uh, brings that to mind. Like, what highway is it that they're driving down? What, where it, where is this non-place? Which well, lo- the names of all three have a certain level of ambiguity. Mulholland Drive is spelt Mulholland Dr, and there's a lot of discussion about is it drive or is it dream that the Dr is supposed to denote and. Inland Empire is a real place and apparently quite a mundane sort of non-place in LA um, but also does the Inland Empire refer to sort of the in- internal land of the self or some other kind of pretentious bullshit that I could add to that. Are there cows? <laughs> this, is, this is the thing. Did you see that video where um... where he was campaigning for Laura Dern with the cow? <laughs> yes. I believe his explanation was that uh, a lot of the writing of the film was fueled by cheese dreams. <laughs> so the cow was instrumental in the creation of Inland Empire. But also he has a weird thing about cows. There was another film... Um, the Unmade film. Yes, yeah. uh, about cows who became human and how they kind of integrated into society. <laughs> Doing cow things. Would love to see it. <laughs> yeah, could be quite fun. Well, but... Um, yeah. I, 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 okay, I've got nothing to follow Just up that. <laughs> David so... Lynch's cow comedy. But then... <laughs> But yeah, just like when I remember when I first saw that, just the photograph of him just sitting in, de- in that chair. It's like a deck chair, a director's chair, just next to him was a cow. And the picture, it, it could almost be insulting if you didn't realise exactly what he was like, he was doing this like to tr- for her. But next to her is a picture of Laura Dern's face with the capture of Laura Dern for your consideration. <laughs> for the record, I definitely think she deserved an Oscar nomination for that. Yes, yes, she did. Did she not even get a nomination? No, I don't think so. Ugh. Well, the Academy's always been I mean, bollocks. to be fair, you've seen Inland Empire. I don't <laughs> think it had much chance. Um. <laughs> I don't get the cheese thing. Did he explain it to you? He works out of Brazil. Cheese is made for milk. Cheese is made for Oh, okay. Get it? I love it. Got it. Got it. I get it. One of the things that is very interesting about this film and is kind of indicative of 
Indicative of the weirdness within the Lynchian canon, at least at the time in context, is is the soundtrack. Because we, we talked a bit about it earlier. It it involves his um, another collaboration with his you know long term collaborator, the brilliant uh, Angelo Badalamenti, uh, who did the music for various things, but I think most famous for Twin Peaks. Like that's the thing getting. I think both this and the sound, um, both that and the soundtrack to Lost Highway have had like vinyl releases recently, possibly. Well, there was there was one that was a tie-in with like Twin Peaks season three, but um, but yeah, this is striking. I mentioned he collaborated with, or I said Nine Inch Nails, but he actually collaborated specifically with Trent Reznor of Nine Inch Nails, um, and that's that's something very. When we think about Lynch and music, it's a very very integral relationship. He, or specifically Lynch and sound, I think kind of. He, he exercises a very strong degree of control over sound, has had a uh, sound designer status as a credit on his film since Elephant Man. That was when he first started appearing as that, and as well as, you know, the director and writer, but that was, um, yeah, it's, it's always been there, and I think that's something very key to his filmmaking style, because it's, it's playing the interplay between the different levels of consciousness and the different levels of consciousness that pick up on different stimuli, uh, music being something that um, different parts of the brain often kind of long ter- longer term memory, or the parts of the brain that deal with longer term memory uh, interact with music very differently than the kind of conscious mind does. Um, but you know that so that 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 can be seen as like kind of integral to the process. But selecting the soundtrack, um, yeah, it's it is very odd um, that he's he's using contemporary music, which I think we should just like. Contemporary and recent music, but also crucially popular music. I think it's worth just going through the list. So we've got, as well as um, Trent Reznor supplying ambient stuff, but I think, is there also a Trent Reznor track on it? There was a specific Trent Reznor track, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah. Um, but there's also a kind of like 90s era Bowie thing, um, which I want to talk about in a minute. Um, but there's also two Marilyn Manson tracks. There's his cover of... Where does the, the cover of I Put a Spell on You? That's during... Is that during the, the... It's the scene when um, Alice first is taken to see Mr. Eddie and then she strips at gunpoint. Mm. Great scene, great choice of song for the scene, even though a lot of the soundtrack for this I have a bit of a struggle with. Yeah, I mean, it's one of the things... I realised um, this whole kind of Bowie, Reznor, Lynch, Manson, Nexus... Um, it's an interesting one at that point in time because I'm tempted to view... Um, David Lynch collaborating with Trent Reznor in the same way one regards David Bowie collaborating with Trent Reznor in the night around the same time, really. Um, and as as something that's like, on one level, brilliant, yes, fantastic. Then also, isn't this a bit on the nose or a bit weird? It's got a slight <laughs> midlife crisis vibe. It does, yeah, um, yeah. That's that's kind of what it feels like, and. And that kind of, you know, at the time must have felt quite pressing to at least some audiences when when it was seen as like, you know, this um, this once great figure now flailing about to try and recover, um, like perhaps failingly recover his, his faded glory, which that's not the case in the slightest. Um, but then it's interesting, though, that this happened going back to how this is how inland, uh, how um, Lost, highway. Lost Highway working backwards. Uh, relates to his previous films because he did he it's not all kind of like original soundtrack stuff he did you he did use kind of like stuff drawn from popular music as well as atmospheric stuff but you know that's always played a big role but what we've come to popularly the popular idea 
of what Lynchian music has become. The most, well, the most notable, certainly the most kind of marketable variety of it is is the idea of Lynchian dream pop, which is basically an entire generation of um, artists uh, or bands uh, having ambient sort of ethereal stuff and breathy female vocalists basically well kind of riffing on julie crows i mean also his interest in the 50s and 60s as a source of music which in a strange way has helped to make all of his other films feel timeless in a way that lost highway doesn't i think maybe because that kind of 50s 60s pop is something that he is using as a shorthand for Americanness and white Americanness in particular. Absolutely. Um, so that his era is just America, and it's the America that he, like Fred Madison, likes to remember his own way, uh, not as necessarily problematic, but um, as this kind of. It's hard to talk about this because I I don't think that Lynch is a particularly political person. Um, but he talked about being a fan of Reagan because Reagan used to be an actor and he reminded him of a cowboy. I mean, it's that kind of simplistic kid's idea of what Americanness is that I think is what keeps him tied to the 50s and 60s music. And that pops back up again as soon as Lost Highway is over. You've got the locomotion in Inland Empire. You've got I Told Every Little Star in um, Mulholland Drive. And... I've no idea when Blue Velvet is supposed to be set, but that also feels like the 50s, even though it isn't. Yeah, that is weird. In the same way, like, Twin Peaks plays around a bit with that, but then you do, you know, there are things that just bring it right into the contemporary. Um, but I mean, I'm, I'm speaking about kind of first seasons, Twin Peaks specifically, but yeah, it's it's kind of, it is kind of, it is a hauntology in a sense. These, um, well, actually not a hauntology, but like, you know, these are spectral presences. Um, these kind of spectres of old things robbed of a certain character or certain robbed of pre- uh, robbed of substance uh, by time but still present thematically but yeah that's that's the thing actually because I was trying to contextualize the soundtrack with um, with wild at heart because um, it's not you know that's it's not the first um, not the first Lynch film to involve metal but I think the difference with wild at heart is that even though um, the track is um, Slaughterhouse by Power Mad. Fucking banger. Um, the, you know, that was, for all intents, that, that was contemporary. That came out in, like, 1989. Um, and, but at the same time, what I think distinguishes that from, say, Rammstein or, um, or Marilyn Manson or Nine Inch Nails, uh, or, you know, because I'm saying metal, but just generally kind of, like, out stuff, 90s out music, um, is that thrash metal kind of has its own version of timelessness because it has its own archetype and that archetype is some is either kind of uh uh kind of weird sort of out outer country kind of like hicks or or there's the kind of idea of like metal metal and burnout culture it's um even though this isn't actually really reflective of um metal fans as a whole it, it has that archetype and so it gains that kind of timelessness of like yeah metal um like yeah, and this, and 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 that whole wonderful thing of like this is our song, but the 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 kind of the alt bat the sort of um, alternative music that he's dealing with in uh, in Lost Highway is is stuff that possessed a, a huge degree more self awareness. Well, also I think uh, with Wild at Heart, although that Power Mad song is in it, my main association 
certainly in terms of music that has a actual narrative function is Elvis in the same way that Roy Orbison is my first association for Blue Velvet and I think of the locomotion when I think of Inland Empire there's always that seed of that era and that sound mm-hmm. um, in a way that usually makes itself known in the story as well as the soundtrack and that's what makes Lost Highway so fucking weird would you say that like the song to the siren was the the one in that in in well no it's no, it's not a song from the fifties I think it's like sixties or seventies um, the original Tim Buckley version but that was kind of that feels like the main song and that's the song he really wanted to get into it I think I think he mentioned at one point possibly that it was gonna make its way into Blue Velvet in some way but he couldn't get the rights to it because it is a very sought after property um, which is brought home by the fact that it doesn't feature on the on the um, CD or record release of the Lost Highway soundtrack, despite being present on it. That is the, um, is it the Miss, this Mortal Coil Collective um, version of it, rather than the Buckley one. Hmm. But yeah, but that kind of that's an interesting one because even though even though it was a popular song, it kind of is timeless. Um, and the way it's dealt with, and the way it's been covered so many times and reinterpreted so many times has gained that timelessness. So I guess if we were going to try and pin that pin that one song, that core song down to something, it would have to be that. Or not, it wouldn't have to be, obviously, but like it could be that. Yeah, I suppose so. Or the Bowie song on the credits, which is very yeah. thematically on the nose. Definitely. Oh, God, yeah. And it's, it's also brilliant. Although, yeah, it's, it's kind of like... Is is fantastic and is is you know Lynch Lynch did that song, but it is, it's not what you think of as a Bowie track. It's, no, it's like nineties era before he took on his. Well, I don't know. We need to go. We need to do a second Bowie episode yeah. <laughs> to talk about this. There is so much, um, but yeah, that's that's crazy. But I don't. Know, it is it is still weird, even if however many kind of um, artistic. Um, justifications one can make for including it it is strange that um that he's working with it i think that's symptomatic of of using like heavy metal and stuff in films because usually it's used by people who aren't metal fans necessarily um and also yeah when heavy metal is off i don't think i've actually seen another film where heavy metal is used not in a kind of comedic context or to imply violence or specifically like absurd violence uh, which it does here, but it's different. Yeah, or a film that has something to do with heavy metal or a subculture, or it's yeah. It there seems to be no reason for it being there other than that it's what he was being given tapes of at the time, mm. and he thought he would try something new, I guess. Yeah, these are all questions. <laughs> I think this is the best way to think about Lynch because I, I don't. I think any other way is well, and any other kind of pod way to talk about Lynch will ultimately resulting failure we just have to go like well he he did this this is his decision and it seems to have worked uh i would like to say a couple of specific things about marilyn manson though oh yeah uh non-use music but who wouldn't yeah (laughs) love to talk about marilyn manson uh so yeah we're back because manson also not only does his music appear in this film he himself does have a uh, does have a cameo he is in the snuff movie Mm. um that we see towards the end and um What's interesting, well, it's interesting that Manson's in it because Manson is like his early stuff in particular is got has a real Lynch feel to it, like and especially and specifically a very Twin Peaks feeling to it. Um, with Portrait of his first album, Portrait of an American Family, which is 
a little bit of me is tempted to call it his best album actually because he, he is someone who got worse as he went along um the has some extremely overt lynchian references like there's a track in it called wrapped in plastic which is obviously a reference to laura palmer and it has a horrible it's very 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 dark song about um sexual abuse of her children and incest and uh, and so on but there's something uh, but Lynch, but um a lot of Manson's persona or the original rationale behind it, because he has become very distant from what he started off as, is that same kind of thing that we do see in Twin Peaks and Blue Velvet specifically with Lynch, that of this like the unacceptable underside of polite American of a polite Americana bursting up into the surface. And you have that in the name that Brian Warner performs under. Marilyn Manson, yeah. famously portmanteau of Marilyn, as Marilyn Monroe yeah. and Manson, Charles Manson, this combination of these two iconic figures, these two genuinely massively culturally iconic figures in the American psyche, but who exemplify these opposite sides of it, but brought together uh, in uh, brought together into one sort of like um, person. Uh, per, uh, personage and uh, you get this as well uh, in other tracks from Portrait of the American Family like uh, the absolute banger it opens with Cake and Sodomy is all about that kind of sort of like this um, like the grit like that kind of like horrible hypocritical like sex spe specifically sexually hypocritical underside to um, Americana that especially that kind of like polite nice Americana well also as I was saying about um Lynch's sort of take on uh, Americanness, whiteness, heterosexuality, all feeling kind of schlocky and draggy and performative. And Marilyn Manson is the same way with outrage, isn't he? It's some, um, mm. there's something false and kind of uh, uncanny about his sort of shock tactics. I think they're never particularly shocking. No, I think they. I think they were perhaps to begin with um i mean i think i mean it's, I mean, it's something that uh, i think it's one of those things where it, it's for us it is these things uh or just feel frankly like a lot of his shock tactics feel frankly adolescent especially now but stuff like especially stuff like coming out of the american the 90s where like think like uh, people even like talking about it in congress and stuff so like this stuff that, that this feel for children are listening to i think it did have more of a genuine potential to shock and disquiet at, in like the particular time and place it came from, which has been which has been lost to history now. I think almost. I mean, I think there's a case to be made. Actually, just thinking about what you've said, I think there's a case to be made for like the fact that basically the '90s was a very interesting period. We've talked about it a lot on this podcast as being the end of history and things, or you know, all that very troubled concept of the end of history. But um, there was certainly a kind of very distinct cultural shift where there was like a, I think there was a shift to kind of like millennia era self-awareness through a uh, rigorous birth, like rigorous process in which self-awareness seemed to have been cast entirely aside during the 90s, the resulting in things like the sort of the shock and the panics that um, surrounded figures like Marilyn Manson. I guess I, it's always they, to yeah. an extent that it's like there was a certain energy that needed to be focused onto a threat. And maybe this and is it, what Lynch was doing. Yeah. Like, yeah, because like you don't have communism he, to worry about anymore. So there's almost I think uh, he was probably paraphrasing self or stealing his quote from someone else. But I think I read it in the Zizek book of him saying that there's almost perhaps for Fukuyama like Fukuyamites a sense of relief when a new great other to be the enemy emerges 
with 9-11 and the construction of that you know and is the construction of the figure of the islamic other yeah can then somewhat take the place or there's an effort i mean you could actually take this in um in a different direction argue that there may have been like like genuine sort of like decisions being made in like high levels of american power not i'm not going truther here with 9 11 <laughs> anything but the idea of, like, of not like of, not like a certain david lynch did <laughs> no i mean in the sense that uh a certain um welcoming and to deliberately construct once this ha once 9 11 happens the idea is okay now we can propagandize and influence and construct an enemy to be kind of like almost like the rebirth of america through strife I don't know. I, okay, no, okay, I'm being conspiratorial. But um, but no, there is this, it's almost, you could feel like, we're, but with the 90s, because it doesn't have this, because communism has fallen, there isn't an enemy, there isn't an enemy anymore. So it's just this, or like, again, you could visualize, like I said, you could visualize this as an energy that needs an enemy to crystallize around. And it kind of like is jumping to different potential sites like for satanic ritual abuse panic or shock rockers like a uh, nine inch nails and uh m, m was going to be the downfall of christendom <laughs> for a while and stuff like that it was um and until eventually it kind of like it does solidify and it's able to sort of like focus itself on like to get the constructed figure of the islamic other um yeah david lynch is a good director <laughs> david lynch is an incredible director yes uh well um we're not really sure how much where where else we can go with this because uh, the 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 lost the, the the ultimate uh, destination the termination point the lost highway has receded and uh, way way past the horizon, and we could as is ever the case on this podcast keep on talking indefinitely about this and continue to just spiral and spiral and spiral into the unknowable. But we feel we've set up a lot that we can return to when we try and tackle Mulholland Drive and eventually the great edifice that is Inland Empire. So we may just leave you there. But thanks for coming on, Pip. This has been amazing. Oh, thanks for having me. Uh, that is uh, Philippa Snow of uh, Hexus Press and many other publications, including The Quietus and all sorts of wonderful things. We will make sure to uh, throw out details about uh, the work you do on the uh, ref thread when we put that out. Thank you, and I am a better writer than I am a speaker, so You're please... You are a terrific speaker and a very, very <laughs> good, uh, great. brilliant writer, so yes. And until we come crashing into your reality again, listener, stay weird. And keep it signal. Good night. Things guide the man, chains his hand.